This morning we are in Psalms 42, if you would like to turn there in your Bibles. I'm reading out of the ESV today, verses 1 through 6a. To the choir master, a maskeel of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with shout, glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Dane. I am the family ministries pastor here at Crossroads Church, so I get to oversee uh, things from kids' ministry through the high school age, but the group I work with the most is the middle school students, the, the junior hires, um, and I love doing that. I, we, we finished up this um, event uh, called The Weekend just a couple weekends back, uh, and we call it The Weekend because it doesn't really have a great category to fit it. It's not a camp. Um, it, it, it's more of a, a mini local mission trip that we do with the students every year. They get trained to go to the Nevada County Fairgrounds where they, they share the gospel with um, children at, at a booth at the fair. Um, and then uh, we come back after hanging out at the fair and we do all sorts of crazy games and eat good food and they spend the night here a couple nights. Uh, we get to go out and minister to the widows in our community and help them with any, any sort of uh, chore or yard work or whatever it is that they need. Um, and then we come back here and we help out around at the church here of facilities stuff and things that we can do for them. Uh, and yeah, we play insane games, including one game that we called uh, H2 Overload, which is literally all it's designed to do is to get shampoo in their hair and put a lot of water on them because they stink after all of that running around. Um, but they're my people, and I, I love getting to minister to them uh, and, and do it in a fun way. But part of what we do uh, for <clears throat> that event is we have Bible studies throughout. We have um, teachings, and we have uh, a theme, and we kind of give it that camp feel where we, we give it a theme. We make a T-shirt, which Ruth Farina, who is the one up on the, on the screen a little bit ago, uh, she made this sweet T-shirt for us, which I get to show off to you today. Yeah, yeah, Sanctuary. She made the design. Um, and I, I actually get to wear a t-shirt on stage on the main sanctuary, which when I started here, which was a long time ago, this was like, this was not okay. This was not acceptable. Um, I would be in huge trouble right now. A whole bunch of the comment cards in the back of your chairs would be filled out with pretty nasty things to say about me. Um, and I know that partly because uh, when, I was <clears throat> when I was younger and starting out and I was helping out, and we actually would serve communion at the front. Um, the, some of the guys would come forward, and we'd pass out communion, and we'd stand at the front during the prayer, and, and one time I wore shorts to do that, and that was a scandal. I heard about that. I heard about that. Um, so things are a little different uh, since from, from when I, I started, which is probably for the better, and yet, uh, knowing all of that, I still wore a sports coat to compensate. Uh, <clears throat> 
which tells you how deep the emotional scarring is from the dress codes um, of the past. Uh, so anyway, um, we're going we're gonna to use the themes, the three studies that we did for the, the weekend, uh, which we called Sanctuary, to look at this morning. And so here we go. We're going to attempt to answer three questions. The first question being, what is the sanctuary? Uh, and we are going to have these three questions that are going to be packed with a whole bunch of context, uh, and yet the answer to them is incredibly basic and simple. Uh, but again, it's got so much context packed into uh, behind them. So uh, the first dictionary definition we could find of sanctuary uh, is simply this. It's a place of refuge or safety, uh, a holy place. Uh, and the church is described um, as uh, in, the sanctuary for the church is the inmost recess or holiest place of the temple or of the church. And we're pretty informal now, as you can see. I'm wearing a T-shirt. And uh, the, the informality of our language would say, when I say the word sanctuary, uh, most of us think of the main building, the main meeting room where the adults go uh, to gather and to hear the word of God. And so we think when we come into this room, uh, this is the sanctuary. I even texted all of my, my parents earlier today, all the junior high parents, like, hey, remember, it's the first Sunday of the month. We're in the main sanctuary. And I typed it. I was like, yep, yep, I just said it. Because that's what it's become for us. It's the, it's the room. It's the meeting space uh, where we go to hear God's word. Uh, and that's good. Now, in, in more traditional and orthodox religion, the sanctuary would refer to the place where the altar would be uh, or the throne might be in, in that church. And in past, in, in the biblical descriptions, uh, it is known as a place of safety. Specifically, Numbers 35, we see uh, God um, set up this, this law, this, this thing for the fledgling nation of Israel um, to help govern them. It was this place of safety they could go, these sanctuary cities, uh, where they would be safe. Someone could be safe from lawlessness, uh, from somebody taking vengeance uh, upon someone that might not deserve it. Uh, and so, but today in our culture and in our vernacular, uh, as, as Americans, the term sanctuary city evokes political um, infighting uh, as states create places of safety from laws of other states um, over issues of immigration uh, or abortion, uh, gender reassignment surgeries for children. Uh, these are the things that in our culture today, when we hear the word sanctuary, those things come to mind. And so it's no wonder uh, it's not a word that's used very often as what should be one of the most precious gifts that we've ever been given. Uh, and it's biblical meaning really utterly lost on us in society today. Now the word is used almost 150 times in my Bible, uh, the first being found in the book of Exodus 15. We'll put it on the screen for you. It's a song, uh, one of the first recorded songs by Moses. Uh, he sings this after God has rescued his people out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. Uh, Pharaoh's troops are swept away and drowned. And the song is long, uh, but we're only looking at the last section of it, beginning in verse 13 there, uh, which tells us that God guided these people whom he loved, where? To his holy abode. Abode meaning house or dwelling place. And then everybody, it describes everybody, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Canaanites, all are freaked out by Israel because God just made the powerhouse Egypt in the, in the region, the powerhouse in the region, look like an ant fighting a rhino. And they should be afraid. Everyone's scared of Israel because of the greatness of God's arm. And so what does Moses say God will do to Israel? 
verse 17, that he will bring them and plant them on his own mountain. Israel would be described as a plant throughout the scriptures. God's people described sometimes as a grapevine, sometimes as an olive tree or a branch. And God's going to plant them in his garden on the mountain, the place God has made his home. Again, there's some really cool references in there to Eden, the the garden, uh, and God dwelling with man. But what he calls his home specifically in this passage, the home is called the sanctuary. Yes, the sanctuary. And this sanctuary, it says, God's hands have established. The Lord will reign or rule forever and ever. This is the first mention of the actual word sanctuary in the Bible, and it depicts God's home, his dwelling, being brought close to God on his mountain, his abode. It's where God reigns forever and ever, the place he's established, again, his dwelling place. That's what the sanctuary is, is the dwelling place of God. It's the place he meets with his people. And so the next time the word sanctuary is used is just a few chapters later, In Exodus, when God uh, tells his people that they're going to build him a tabernacle, uh, which was a tent, it's called the Tent of Meeting, uh, and that would be his sanctuary. We see in Exodus 25, uh, verses 8 and 9, it says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And that's the reason God wanted them to build him a sanctuary. It wasn't so he could have an awesome place to live while he you know, was on earth because he was homeless or something. Think about it. He created heaven and earth. And there's some pretty epic places on earth. And when we read the descriptions of heaven, uh, it's even more amazing than, than the cool places we see here. So us building him a house would be more like us asking a dog to dig a hole for us to crouch in when we come and visit him in the backyard. Right? Like that's what 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 the the comparison is. It's not very great, but the the very symbolic meaning behind this is is quite great. The reason God asked for them to build him a sanctuary was so he could dwell in their midst, so he could live among them, he could dwell with them. Then we'd have to ask the question, why would he need a sanctuary to dwell with his people? Why the the tabernacle? Well, the answer is sin. Uh, And for that, you could turn all the way to Genesis 3 if you're fast. Again, I'll put it up on the screen, but uh, we've already experienced by Genesis 3 the creation story. God's created everything. He created it. It was very good. It was perfect. There's no sin there. Everything was right. And then, of course, man and woman had to go and mess everything up. They ate the fruit. God told us not to eat. The one rule, the one law, um, and we broke it. But we have hints of the relationship between God and man uh, before the fall. And one very interesting one is Genesis 3, verse 8, where it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So it says that God was walking Uh, Some versions say strolling through the garden. And it's not implicit, but many people believe that this was a regular occurrence, that God and man would take walks in the garden together before the fall. There's no sin, so there's nothing separating them from each other. They lived in perfect harmony up until this point when man and woman in our sin realized we can't stand before God. Now we're naked and ashamed before his perfection. So God could not just show his glory to humans after this. Because of their sin, they would actually die. 
Uh, he tells Moses this. Moses got to see just a glimpse of, the, of what God described as the back of his glory uh, through the cleft of this rock. He like set it all up. And then he sees just this little glimpse of God's glory. And after that, what happens to Moses is his face comes down the mountain and his face is shining like the sun. And people can't even look at Moses. They have to put a veil over his face just to have a conversation with him. It's crazy. So something has clearly happened because of sin that we could not dwell with him like we could before sin. So God had us create a tabernacle, which was a temporary dwelling place uh, while Israel made their way to the promised land. It's basically this giant tent structure. And once uh, they arrived at, at Israel, they eventually built him a temple, a more permanent dwelling place for God to dwell among his people. But this tabernacle and the temple, they're very exclusive things. Not just anyone could approach the innermost areas of the tabernacle or the temple. It's where God dwelled. Nothing unworthy can stand in his presence. So the tabernacle and the temple were divided into different parts. Uh, and you can see there's like this, this wall that goes around the, the tabernacle that would prevent people from um, coming in. And the, the temple even was even more structured. You'd have different areas, different courtyards that certain people could go into but not others. And certain people could get a little bit closer but not others and a little bit closer until you actually get to um, the structure of the tabernacle or the temple itself, uh, which is essentially... Uh, three cubes. There's the first room that's like two cubes stacked together, uh, and some people could come in into that uh, area. And then the furthest part in was this cube structure, this cube room uh, that was very exclusive. Um, so the next level of approaching God's dwelling is entering into that tabernacle. And only a select number of priests could go in to perform a very specific set of tasks in the first part of that area, which was called the holy place. That's like as close as you could get to being next to God. And this, um, this area beyond that, separated by this giant curtain, so that no one could even glimpse, no one could look in and, um, and accidentally see God's, God's glory, that was the place called the holy of holies, the holiest part of the temple or the tabernacle, the place God dwells, um, with the Ark of the Covenant. There's so much symbolism there, it take forever for us to unpack. But as for approaching that space where God dwells, only once a year, one priest out of all the people of Israel would be allowed to go into this section. It was separated from that holy place by a curtain. And one person once a year would wash himself ceremonially, make himself very clean, and then would enter in with the blood of a sacrifice and sprinkle blood on the ark um, to atone for or to cover the sins of the nation of Israel. So because of sin, it's always been a kind of exclusive thing to enter the holy place, the holy of holy place, to dwell with and talk with God. And the Old Testament's full of examples where God did meet with men sometimes appearing uh, as a man or a voice or as a whirlwind, etc. We already mentioned Moses. There's also Abraham and Jacob and Job and Enoch and prophets and other characters who would hear directly from God and walk with God, perhaps not as fully as Adam and Eve got to before sin, but they still experienced dwelling pretty close to God in a very special way. But it was always rather exclusive. 
as is symbolized by the temple and the giant curtains separating man from God's dwelling place. Until what happens? Well, that's in the Gospels. Jesus died. When Jesus died, we know he paid the penalty for our sin. And suddenly this thing that had separated God from man all this time was paid for. Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel record something amazing that happens at the death of Jesus. I don't think we spent enough time talking about this. That the veil, the curtain separating man from the holy of holy places was torn in two. What an amazing moment. Jesus dies and this happens. What could that mean? Well, it means the barrier separating God from man was torn. It was destroyed. And now God and man can dwell together unhindered by the same barrier because Jesus' blood paid the penalty. And so this is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3 uh, that we are God's temple. Here Paul is reminding the Christians at Corinth that the temple is no longer a stone structure or a tent where the priests work and sacrifice. Um, It was in Christians. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ God would not only save, but would make his dwelling place with them. It's so cool to think about. Now we can walk in the Spirit. And it isn't something that's exclusive to some Christians, but it's available to all who believe. So in this life, even though we're not perfect yet, and we still have struggles with sin, which we'll talk about, we are counted as righteous in the eyes of God. So much so that he can dwell inside of us, making his home in us, his new sanctuary in Christians. Isn't that awesome? And that's going to have massive implications for the rest of our lives and the rest of the biblical story. So I like going to Revelation 21. You could turn there if you want. Again, I'll put it on the screen. Uh, Going all the way to Revelation 21 and 22 is good for us from time to time because it reminds us uh, how it all plays out uh, and what we have to look forward to. We see there the final sanctuary of God as it's described in Revelation 21 beginning in verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So cool. And notice that verse 3, that this voice from the throne, meaning the voice of God, is saying this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. It will be perfect. So exciting that final sanctuary, this new city where we'll dwell with God forever. A fun fact about that city might sound a little uh, familiar to that little squished area in the tabernacle or the temple. It's described in Revelation 21.16 to say that it has the, the length, width, and height are all equal. And if the length, height, and width are all equal, what does that make it? A cube, right? Just like the Holy of Holies in the temple, in the tabernacle. A cube. This space where with the the tabernacle only a a very, very small amount of people ever even got a glimpse inside. 
the Holy of Holies. No one could enter. But here, all of God's people enter this city. So cool. And if you look down at verse 22, there's an important note about the temple or tabernacle. Is that there is no temple or tabernacle. There'll be no official place or building or room or tent called the sanctuary. The temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. It's him. Those who enter his city are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. These are those who believe in him and endure. And so that means we, the the Christians, the believers, we're in that book of life. We'll be here one day in that final sanctuary, dwelling with God unhindered by sin and temptations and this body that is temporary. And I'm looking forward to that day. But until then, we do dwell with the Lord who lives with us, lives inside of us, has made his home in us. And so uh, the, the question, what is the sanctuary? Um, again, fairly easy to answer that. It's God's dwelling place. It's where he dwells. What is the sanctuary? That's God's home. That's God's home. And that brings us to our passage this morning in Psalm 42, because the second question uh, is that we've already largely answered is where is the sanctuary? And that's posed for us here in our passage. So Psalm 42, beginning again in verse 1. says, As deer pants for water, or for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And we'll stop there for a moment. Verse 1 is obviously helpful in understanding you know, the t-shirt design this year. Okay, the deer pants for flowing streams of water. Uh, like this, so my soul pants after God. It's a picture of longing and need. Now, I've never actually witnessed a deer panting for water. Um, I see deer all the time, right? We, we live in the foothills. There's just deer everywhere. And the ones I see all the time are the ones that are destroying my front yard. And I hate them. And they see me as I run out. And they take off running. Um, but I've never actually seen one panting for water. Yet I still totally get the analogy. Have you ever been thirsty? You ever seen a dog or a cat panting? Um, you get this idea. It's this action the body takes when we're, when we're thirsty, when we're hot, when the only thing that's going to help us is a, is a nice, cool drink. And this thirst is a desire that's born from a specific need. It's not a suggestion that our body gives us. It's a need. If we don't drink, we will die. And the analogy here is that the singer's soul thirsts for God, longs for the living God, and nothing else will, will suffice. Nothing can quench that thirst but the one true living God. This is the desire of the heart of the singer, to meet with, to come and appear before God, to be with God, to dwell with him. So if our first question is, what is the sanctuary? The answer is God's home. Now we have the second question posed to us here, the question being, where is the sanctuary? And it's the question posed to us there in verse 3. The singer's sad and distressed. Why? Because these people are saying to him all day long, where is your God? And that's the second question. 
Where is the sanctuary or where is God's dwelling place? And the singer of the song seems to be being harassed by someone who's mocking their belief and trust in God. Uh, perhaps the singer is going through a difficult trial here. Um, tough times are happening. Someone's sick. Someone's broke. Someone's died. Someone's hurting and in an anguish. People sometimes say, or maybe it's just voices in our own head, that when we're faced with difficulties, difficult situations, they'll say things like, where is your God? Why would God allow something like that to happen? He's not so powerful if he couldn't save you from this. Where's your God? You ever hear those voices? Those are things, voices that will, will attempt to get us to not trust in the Lord. And so what does the singer do? He says that he remembers how they would go with the throng or the crowd, the people of God. He would go with them and lead them in procession to the house of God, to the dwelling place, to the sanctuary. They would go with glad shouts and songs of praise. It was a multitude having a festival, a party. The singer remembered the times when there was worship when he sang praises to God with the multitudes because God has shown himself to be good and faithful. The singer remembered the good times, the good deeds uh, of God that are worthy to be praised. Which is probably a great point of application for all of us today, but especially those of us who are going through a difficult trial right now. When you're faced with bad times, hard things, when you feel tired, dry, beat down, by the world around you, maybe friend or foe, to remember the Lord. Remember the good that he's done. Remember his son, his sacrifice, his love for us. That happened. And that's why we worship. That's why we know beyond a shadow of doubt what lies in store for us that will be in the new sanctuary someday. And also what we learn here in the rest of, of the psalm Ask with the singer the next little verse in the song, which seems to be the chorus or the refrain because it's repeated at the end of the psalm, is verse 5. It says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So sometimes we get to a place where we're cast down, where we're down in the dumps, we're frustrated, we're in turmoil which is a great word, turmoil. It means a great disturbance, confusion, or uncertainty. A great disturbance in the force, you could say. Turmoil, right? I've personally felt a decent amount of turmoil within my soul the last few months, um, but really uh, in the last few years especially, I guess we could say. And it's, it's one of the reasons for the theme this year of sanctuary. And others of you in this room, you probably felt a great deal more turmoil than I have. But for wherever we are on the spectrum of that, we look to the chorus. Look at the remedy for the soul in turmoil. Hope in God. Hope in God. We have hope. And our hope is in the Lord, the creator of the universe. Our hope isn't that our, our suffering would stop or that things would just magically get better. Well, we might hope for that too, but our ultimate hope is in God that he knows what's best. He will rescue us in his time and we need to patiently wait on him and that's that annoying little word, wait. And we see it's in this funny little section of the Bible in Romans 8 that talks about hope. It tells us that we hope for something we don't see. 
And when we hope for something we don't see, it hasn't yet come. We must hope for it, and therefore we have to wait for it with patience. So wait patiently on the Lord. Look to him. Don't let your gaze start looking to men or women or other powers or things to fulfill you or save you from your troubles. We must look to God. And like the singer in the psalm, praise him again. He is our salvation and our God. We must remember this. And if you were to keep reading through the psalm, the lesson essentially repeats itself. Again, in verse 6, there's a sense of the singer's feeling uh, being cast down or sad or upset. He says, therefore, I remember you, God. There's some really beautiful lyrics in this song, lots of cool imagery like God's presence and love and, and the song that's, that's gone over the singer. It's covering the singer like an ocean or a waterfall or a wave. Night and day, God is with us. These are great things to remember as the singer gets to the issue of others crying out against the singer and again being in a state of mourning or sadness. Again, the people saying, where is your God? That mocking gesture they'll do to Christians, where is your God? As soon as something bad happens, where is your God? As soon as things don't go their way, where is your God? Which is followed again by the chorus in verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now you could turn to another psalm with a similar feel and message, Psalm 73. And this is one that's been of recent comfort to me. I'd, I'd love it to be for you. Um, we're not going to go into all of it, but it's a good reminder. I'll summarize the rest of it as we go through. Uh, psalm 73, beginning in verse 1. It says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. For as for me, or but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now I love how this psalm starts with the truth. Uh, truly God is good. God is good to Israel. He's good to his people. To those who are pure in heart. That's a great way to start. Knowing the truth about God. But then the psalmist starts to get confused. He's frustrated that the arrogant or the proud, the wicked people prosper sometimes. And sometimes it does seem like the wicked and evil and arrogant people of the world prosper in our world. They get all the goods. Nothing bad ever seems to happen to them. And how come bad things happen to the people of God, but not to the wicked? You ever wonder that? You will someday. It's one of life's frustrations, but I like how the psalmist answers this, how he deals with the problem. For that, you look down at verse 16. Verses 4 through 15 are a lot of singing about how the bad guys are. They're just bad and how frustrating that is. We're skipping it. We get the gist of it. Verse 16, he says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. He says, when I tried to figure all this out, it was exhausting. It was a wearisome task. It seemed impossible, tiresome, discouraging. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. The psalmist understood that to stand in God's presence, to be near him, made any wearisome problem seem like a much smaller issue. He found his answer in the sanctuary of God, dwelling with God. Such a cool thing to think about. 
to be in the sanctuary of God, but the question still stands, where is that? Where is the sanctuary? If answers are found, if hope is found, if peace is found in the sanctuary of God, where is that? Well, there could be several answers to that question. We've already given some of the answers away, uh, but there's two obvious places that we see in the Bible, and it, it actually describes it for us, both of them, in Psalm 73, if you skip down to verse 23, which says, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you'll receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God in is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So verse 25 tells us one of the places uh, that's described as God's sanctuary quite nicely. And it's the one, if, if I ever ask the junior hires, where does, you know, where does God dwell? If I were to ask them that question, the immediate answer they give me uh, is heaven. That God dwells in heaven. And that's true. Um, that is true. But I love how the psalmist puts it here. He says, who have I in heaven but you? What good would heaven be if God wasn't there? It might still be in you know, a pretty nice place. Sounds pretty cool. Some neat people there, I'm sure. But if God's not there, is it heaven? Is it the sanctuary? Heaven is where God is. The sanctuary is where God dwells. But there's another place that's described as sanctuary or dwelling place of God, and it's fairly obviously stated We've already kind of talked about this, but in verses 23, 24, and the second half of 25 and 28 especially, this is something the psalmist, at the time of writing this, didn't even have as fully as we have now after Jesus has come. But where's another place the Lord chooses to dwell? Where has God made his home? It's in us, in his people. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. We are his home. That means the sanctuary never really leaves us. You have access to the sanctuary every second of every day. Verse 23, the psalmist says, I'm continually with you. Verse 28, where he says, for me, it's good to be near God. And I've made the Lord God my refuge, or could easily be translated as sanctuary. So the second question, where is the sanctuary? Is answered, it's wherever God is. It's where God is. The first question, what is the sanctuary? Well, that's God's dwelling place. It's his home. Where is the sanctuary? That is where God is. And all of the complexities of what all of that means, we're going to continue to find out as we attempt to answer perhaps the most important question of all. Uh, But it really does take a lifetime to learn and relearn the truth about God's sanctuary and us dwelling with him in his home. And it won't be fully realized until we are at rest with him. Uh, in heaven and then the new world he will create for us um, and for his glory. He's so awesome. And with him are all the answers. Uh, With him the questions fade away and he gives rest to our souls. But we haven't gotten to the, the, the most important question of all. How do I get into the sanctuary? How do I get in the sanctuary? Because like our theme verse and image represents, uh, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts 
for the living God. That's the heart we Christians need to have, the desire more than anything else that our souls long to be with him, the living God. How do we get there? How do we get to be with him, to dwell with him? How do we go from people who know some things about God and we say we believe that we love God? We've accepted his forgiveness and promise of heaven, but perhaps some of you still feel distant from God. You know he promised to live inside of you, but sometimes it doesn't really feel that way. Well, first of all, don't trust your feelings. They often lie to you. The person who said, follow your heart or trust in your feelings was a moron. Um, <coughs> all, all the silly Disney princess songs, uh, just follow your heart, they're not written by the psalmist, okay? It's a terrible idea because your heart is sick and wicked because of sin. Um, so we can't trust our feelings when we say, I don't feel like I'm near God because sometimes we are near to him and we just don't feel it. That being said, Sometimes it doesn't feel like we're near God because we've been running away from him. So what do we do? How do we draw near God? How do we enter his sanctuary? Well, let's figure it out together. And to do that, you could turn to Hebrews 10. Again, it'll go up on the screen. Uh, but I'm going to go to Hebrews 10, Hebrews uh, 11, and then James, and we'll end in John um, I'm going to try to figure out how to draw near to God. If his sanctuary is his home, a place of rest and peace, that's wherever God is. To enter his sanctuary means we must draw near to God. And as we're drawing near to God, we will enter that place. So how do we do that? Hebrews starts us off rather well. Chapter 10, verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And we'll take that apart. Since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and by now you, you kind of know what that means. It means you can confidently enter the holy place now remember the imagery about the holy place, the holy of holies in the temple and the tabernacle. That's as close to God as you could get. And so this imagery, the author of, of Hebrews writing to the Hebrews, the Jewish people, um, sometimes uh, th this, we, we lose some of the context of this. They very much so would have gained the understanding of what's going on here. We have confidence to enter the sanctuary because of the blood of Jesus. He paid the penalty for us. His blood covers our sins. He created a new way, the living way, that he opened for us through the curtain. Now remember the curtain we talked about in the temple. No one could enter there but a priest once a year to make atonement for the sins of Israel. This curtain separated man from God. And that curtain was torn in two the day Jesus died. He opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. The image of the curtain being torn is such a powerful one. Because uh, the curtain was torn as Jesus' flesh was torn. The life was torn from his body. He accomplished this. Only he could accomplish this. You and I could not make that happen. Verse 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God. Remember, the house of God, this dwelling place, the sanctuary. One priest would go in every year. Jesus is our great high priest 
who sits in God's presence year-round, and he makes atonement for our sins permanently. Nothing more to be done there. So what can we do is found in, in the last verse we read, verse 22, where he says, Therefore let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You and I can enter the sanctuary now. The way has been made open by Jesus. But how do we, how do we step into that? How do we draw near to God? We get a sense of how to draw near to God there in, uh, in, in that section, this idea of drawing near with full assurance of faith, that it does take faith. We draw near in faith believing we can because of what Jesus did for us. So you can confidently draw near knowing he's made us righteous. But also this idea that we have to have our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, bodies washed with pure water. And Jesus does this for us, but the verbiage used here is a continual washing, one that he talked about with his disciples. We, we need to constantly be washed from evil conscience and thoughts. And this is something in which we do play a part, and a part of it is faith. Maybe a page over uh, in your Bibles is Hebrews 11, known as the Hall of Faith, because it describes all the characters in the Bible with some of the greatest faith in history. But Hebrews 11, verse 6, reads this, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We must have faith. You must trust God or it's impossible to please him. If you want to draw near to God, you must believe he exists and he rewards those who seek him. I think that's interesting. Because oftentimes we approach God and we, we approach him like, yes, I believe you exist. But I don't know if I believe that I can actually be near you or that you really care about me, you're thinking about my life. I mean, who am I? I'm a nobody. Who, who would be interested in me? Sometimes we believe like that, and we must stop. Believe and know you can draw near to him. Not just a select group of Christians get to draw near to God. It's not just your parents, or your pastors, or your missionaries. You. You can draw near to God. And he will reward you for your effort to get close to him. He's not going to kick you to the curb. He's not going to have you play hide and seek and never actually find him. No, you can draw near to him. Believe it. Believe it like you believe he exists and that Jesus died to save you. It's true. And he who has promised is faithful. So believe you can draw near to God. But the question still stands, how do we do that? How do we do that? Turn to James, just a few pages to your right very next book of the Bible, James 4, clues us into a bit of what the author of Hebrews was telling us. It takes some cleaning. You want to get close to God? You want to enter his sanctuary? Okay, well, get to cleaning. Let the Holy Spirit cleanse your heart and life of sin and wickedness. James 4, verse 8, says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's one of the strangest passages in the New Testament, and I love it. Um, it, it sounds almost Old Testament, but no, it's, it's new. James is writing to Christians. These are people who've already been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. They are saved people he's talking to. And this is what he tells them. He says, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. That's a promise. 
Then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. And this is language of the Old Testament. The ceremonial cleansing of hands was a purifying thing they do to symbolize they were clean. God isn't saying you have to use soap and water all the time to draw near to him. He's not a germaphobe. Okay? But he is talking about sin. He's talking about a pure heart, which he says next. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mournful and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. James isn't saying you should be miserable because miserable people draw near to God. No, he's talking about sin here. He's saying if you have sin in your life, you need to purify your heart. If you're double-minded, meaning you want to draw near to God, but you also want to keep on sinning, then you need to change. You need to drastically reject sin. And what was once fun and enjoyable to you, you need to run from it. Even at the cost of joy in doing it. Even if you must mourn and weep over the loss of that thing you wanted to do, cleanse your heart and life. And he says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. If you go to the Lord understanding that you're weak and sinful and in need of salvation, he will meet you in that state and help you. But if you approach him in pride like you have your life all figured out, he's going to reject your attempts to get near him because he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Accept his correction. Change stuff around in your life so we're rejecting sin and accepting him and he will draw near to you. There's a couple examples of Israel um, that could be described as them not really drawing near to God even though they um, said they were drawing near to God. In Zephaniah 3, um, and actually we'll, we'll skip through and we'll, we'll go to Isaiah 29 also is another example um, of Isaiah 29. These people would speak of, of honor and but their actions wouldn't show it. Their heart was actually far from them. They weren't really drawing near to God. Their fear of God was just commandments taught by men, not something they practiced from their heart. So we have to be careful about this. We must cleanse our hearts and, of, and our, our lives of anything that might um, be keeping us in, in a state of sin, that thing that Jesus came to pay the penalty for. You are at his house now, so clean house. It might take time for us to examine our hearts and our house, but if it does need a good cleaning, have you allowed certain areas in your, in your life to be invaded by sin and temptation you know is not holy? Clean house, purify yourself, and ask for God's Spirit's help and get radical about it. So that's a huge part of drawing near to God is battling sin, obedience to his commands. And the other huge part of drawing near to God is where we'll end in John 15. You can turn there if you'd like. But John 15, one of my favorite chapters in all the, all the Bible, uh, and it's, it's again an imagery of, of the vine. It's again a plant that is planted in God's, on God's mountain where he is. Uh, and it describes this idea, if, if we wanted to ask, what does it mean to be in the sanctuary of God? Well, we should probably ask Jesus, because he knows the most about it. Uh, and he, he uses this terminology, abide, abide in him. And uh, I found a great definition of, of that, of abiding. To abide means to continue without fading or being lost. To continue in or remain in without fading or getting lost. <clears throat> John 15, we'll just read a chunk of this. Verse 1, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself 
unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the fathers loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So again, Jesus is this vine. We have to abide in him if we want to see anything good come in our lives. Anything that would be of God come into our lives. We want to dwell with God. We must abide in him, continue in him. And some of the things he, he talked there, I'll leave it to you guys to, to study that passage um, in depth. But he's talking about things like abiding in his word, in what he has to say, to ask things of him, to pray. Imagine that, like the thing that you were taught when, when you were eight, and then again when you were in middle school, and then when you were in high school, and then again over and over and over again. It's like, hey, read your Bible and pray, right? Like, that's probably a good place to start. You want to abide in God. You want to dwell with God. Then pay attention to what he has to say. Speak to him. Talk to him. And then this idea of following his commandments, these are ways that we can abide in him, to dwell with him, to get close to him and stay with him so that we can learn what it means to follow in the ways of Jesus. It's not enough to know the ways of Jesus, but to follow his ways, to keep his commands, to obey God just like Jesus did. So how do I get into the sanctuary? By drawing near to God. And yeah, that comes with a lot, meaning I'm rejecting sin radically. I'm seeking God in faith by reading his word, prayer, obedience to his commandments by living in the ways of Jesus, devoting my heart, soul, and strength to his good pleasure. And so the personal application question for each of us could simply be this. Are you dwelling in the sanctuary of God? You know what the sanctuary is. It's God's home. You know where it is. It's wherever God is, wherever he's dwelling, which is certainly heaven, but also on earth with his people. And you know how his people have gained access to the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, and how we can draw nearer and nearer to him as we abide in that sanctuary. We continue to dwell in that sanctuary without fading or becoming lost. By cleansing our lives of sin through studying of his word, prayer, obedience to his commands. Now would you look at your life and say, yes, I dwell in the sanctuary of the Lord. Or would you say anything else? And why say anything else? Examine for yourself. Do you still desire to dwell with him, to appear before him today? Can you say with the psalmist, my soul thirsts for the living God, when can I come and appear before God? Let that desire overwhelm all other desires in our lives. To be with God, to be of the first priority over any other desire or longing. So I'll ask the worship team to come on up. You probably received the communion elements uh, either when you came through the doorway to the sanctuary, and if not, there's some at the tables at those doorways. Um, 
But this is, this is a pretty symbolic thing for our message today. Uh, because this, if the sanctuary is just the big room where the adults go to study the scriptures uh, and hear from God, then just like the temple or the tabernacle, you had to go through a door to get in here. And back then, there would be a curtain that would you know, otherwise separate you from knowing God, from being close to him and dwelling with him. But that curtain was torn in two. And it was opened up into a big old wide doorway by the thing that those communion elements symbolize, the body and blood of Jesus. And that's how we enter the sanctuary. That's who made the way for us to enter in and to know God, to make our dwelling place with him, to enter the holy places with confidence, is our great high priest who made atonement for our sins once and forever. And we get to partake of the communion elements together, um, remembering what he accomplished and what that's given us. So let's pray and take communion together um, before we go. God, you are so good. You're so good to your people. We thank you for Jesus, for his death and resurrection, by which he paid our penalty. He made atonement for our sins and offers us life, eternal life, not just eternal life in heaven, but life here with you, to dwell with you, to know you. Thank you for opening that way through the curtain so we could dwell with you. And so we partake of the, the bread that represents Jesus' body and the, the cup that represents his blood in honor and worship of you. We thank you. We thank you so much for Jesus, for his death, for his resurrection. We love you and we, we praise you for these things and we remember what you've done for us. Amen. Let's partake. All right, let's make this the prayer song of our life today and every day. Psalm 73, verse 23 says, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you'll receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. But for to me it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So let's draw near to the sanctuary of God every day so we can be near our great Lord and Savior Jesus and tell others of his works. Amen. Have a great Sunday.